What they didn't know was that the maintenance people would fix this hydraulic line with the wrong parts. And um, when it turned on, um, it decoupled and sprayed flammable fluid under the burners that were unshielded, um, that were lighting up the fire, and created an explosion. And that explosion cut the plant in half. The workers who were working in the front were able to get out the front door, but the workers in the back of the plant, as he said, ran to the exits. Um, interestingly enough, they'd never had a fire drill before, so they kind of didn't know where to go. Um, and, and many of them ran to the exits, and they found those exits locked. In one case, the exit was bolted from the outside um, twice. And 12 workers, actually, 11 workers, um, went into a cooler because they thought that, that that would protect them from the flames. But what they didn't know is it trapped them in there with carbon monoxide, noxious gases, and they died in that cooler. And pretty shortly, 25 people were dead that morning. And, um, you know, none of them needed to die. Um, some basic fire safety, some basic attention to people's lives, some just some basic decency would have kept would have kept them alive. And um, I, I, I mentioned the Raleigh News and Observer when I started the story because um, I, I wanted to just kind of point this out. I mean, probably a lot of your listeners remember just what a great paper it was. I don't read it now. I actually don't know what, what the state of the paper was, but it was really a great paper in 1991. And they told the story of the fire and of the failures of administrators and other officials with such flair and detail and competence and compassion that it stayed with me. And about 25 years after the fire, I was kind of had finished a book about Starbucks, actually, and I was kind of thinking of what else I wanted to write about. And, and um, I remembered many of the details from the fire, from that, from that reporting, um, that reporting that I'm not sure would happen today because they just wouldn't have the money and resources to do it. And as I told you earlier, well, one of the first things I did when I decided I was going to write the book is I went to Hamlet and um, I met with three journalists who had covered the fire, kind of local local journalists and um, a fire official. And we were sitting down to eat and we were talking about the fire. And one of them said to me, well, look, there's not really a book here there's not much to say. It was just an accident. Um, the owner of the plant, who was a guy by the name of Emmett Rowe, who we can talk about more later, um, he had come from Pennsylvania um, trying to avoid a union and regulations to run his plant there. Um, he said, look, Emmett Rowe was just a bad guy, not very nice. And, you know, if he hadn't done what he had, had done, we wouldn't be sitting here. It was an accident. And, that really got me thinking, you know, is it really an accident? So kind of what the book is about is the idea that this wasn't an accident, that this wasn't just about Emmett Rowe, this wasn't just about one bad actor. It was really about a kind of way of thinking and a way of thinking about food, a way of thinking about government, a way of thinking about people that really jeopardized the people who worked in that plant and, and made them vulnerable in a way that, again, was no accident. And so, well, maybe the fire wasn't inevitable. I, I try and sort of put together the pieces of a system that made their lives um, precarious and vulnerable that morning 
And, and I think, you know, we can talk about it later. I think you can see some of this same kind of precarity and vulnerability um, happening in recent months with, with people who make our food, um, who have been forced to work shoulder by shoulder in plants um, where, you know, COVID just ran rampant through those plants. And when they asked for PPE, they were in some ways threatened by saying, look, you can't cut off the nation's food supply. So they were forced to kind of make a choice between their personal safety and providing all of us with cheap meat. Well, I was one of those people who started out by looking at the front of the book exactly. So I'm, I'm, this is along the lines of what you're talking about, and it's called the Hamlet Fire. And I said, okay, it's going to be about this place where there's a fire, and there's going to be some bad guys, and some people are not going to get out, and that's going to be the, the story of it. Well, it's, as you're indicating, we've got a we've got at least an hour of radio here, maybe a lot more than that, uh, a whole book of stuff. Uh, just to point out something to you, uh, Brian, because you and I had limited conversations about this before we started this program, the whole business about the fire departments and how they dealt with the fire and how they didn't even have a map of the place and how no, yeah. I, I believe you said that the, the place had never been inspected. It had never been. Um, this is crazy. Um, this plant, um, the people who owned it, and I'm not saying they were good guys, um, they were reckless, and they were in a really tough business that demanded they cut costs or they felt like they had to cut costs, and, and they did. And um, they ran a rickety and, and dangerous plant, and you needed to look no further than the fact that that plant had three previous fires yet, yet the, the fire chief had never been inside the plant. They had never, they, they did not have a pre-fire plan and when one of the one of the Rockingham, Rockingham, which is a little bigger city next door to a fireman who was called that day, told me that the local fire people didn't know where the closest source of water was the morning of the fire. And this is despite the fact that they had had three fires. This is despite, I mean, we can talk about one other thing is, that, so this is a plant, the owner of this plant, um, Emmett Rowe, ran a company called Imperial Food Products. In Pennsylvania, in Moosick, Pennsylvania, actually where um, Joe Biden spoke recently, um, he had a similar plant, and he felt like, you know, he, he wasn't making as much money there. He bought into some of the enticements about relocating to North Carolina, including that, um, that well, well, in, in Moosick, um, OSHA, the um, Occupational Safety and Health um, Organization, had fined him. He, there was a union at his plant, and um, eventually relocates to North Carolina, hoping he'll have less regulation, and, and you know, pretty certain he's not going to have to face a union. But OSHA in Pennsylvania never notifies OSHA in North Carolina that a serial health and safety violator is coming into its midst, despite the fact that he kept the same name. And I think one of the most amazing things this, uh, I discovered, and other people wrote at the time, um, it's kind of an amazing story. North Carolina in 1991 was the most industrial state in America per capita. And, and again, many of your listeners can remember the Jim Hunt years and those years when, you know, lots of factories were open in North Carolina. It, you know, they had sort of achieved that goal of becoming a state that wasn't, you know, with a mixed economy that wasn't just dominated by agriculture. Yet, North Carolina at that point 
at maybe 40 factory inspectors. So if you think about the math here, if they did their, if they went to visit a factory once, you know, each inspector visited one factory or two factories a day, five days a week, it would have taken them 75 years to visit every factory in the state. That meant that Emmett Rowe could lock the doors knowing that he would never, never be subjected to a fire violation, never be subjected to an OSHA violation. Essentially, it meant he could run the plant any way he wanted. And the other thing that's really fascinating, this is the, you know, now we're getting into the system part. The people who worked there knew this. I mean, they knew it was odd they never had a fire drill. They, they knew it was ominous that doors were locked in the back. Yet, they never complained to any kind of public official. Why? Because, and we can talk about Hamlet more, but they lived in a place where they feared if they lost their job, there was not another job to be had. And so, in some ways, they helped to enforce the kind of lack of inspection because they felt like they had no options. This was the sort of economic reality for them. And, and one of the things I say in the book is, Part of what this system was about was creating, in a sense, silences to let employers run their plants the way they wanted to, because that was their source of profit. I'm going to stop you there, because uh, I was going to mention, uh, and we don't really need to explore much of this tonight, but in the book you do a a good bit uh, to explain how Hamlet had once been a very prosperous town and a real railroad center. I think it was one of the two places in North Carolina, Spencer being the other one, that had a uh, turntable where you could yeah. where, where the southern, you could turn the trains around, so to speak. Right. And it had, it had high-paying jobs, and that, of course, had, had gone by the wayside. And uh, like you said, the people there who once, had the possibility of having reasonably good-paying jobs, some which would last a lifetime. Now we're having to get along with whatever they could. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest is Brian Simon. The book is The Hamlet Fire, and we're going to ask him to work out from the fire to talk about other things. One of the things that I did mention to you is one of the things he's interested in, Brian, that is, the historian here, is food. And I guess maybe that uh, he got a, a little bit of concern because of the well, you will see that he is concerned a little bit because of what was being produced at the uh, the Hamlet uh, factory. It, it, it could be anything, of course, but it uh, is another piece of American history that's worth uh, looking at. Uh, but I did look up the name of, I think it's Eric Schlosser. Is that the, the guy's name? Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. wrote Fast Food Nation. Yeah, he's the guy you would have read, and I... I, I, I spent some of the time between our conversation this afternoon and that tonight uh, to, working on that. But anyway, we'll give you back the microphone when we come back after we take this break. 9.25, we just went a little long in the first part of uh, the program, so this is going to be about a five-minute shot here with Bryant Simon, the author of The Hamlet Fire, which we are finding out it's a little more complicated than just a fire that got out of control and and owners who uh, were irresponsible in locking the doors. There's actually a lot more to that, and there's a lot more to the story. And we're going to hand the ball 
I guess we'll use the football metaphor, <laughs> and uh, let Brian decide where he's going to go if he wants to talk about uh, the cheap, cheap government, uh, cheap uh, food, or uh, cheap bodies, cheap lives. Yeah, um, maybe for just talking about Hamlet a little bit more. I mean, you started talking about it. Hamlet yeah. was, as you pointed out, a really fascinating place. Um, in 1926, interestingly enough, it was the birthplace of John Coltrane, the, the jazz saxophone legend, and Tom Wicker, a really wonderful New York Times journalist. And um, it was a railroad center, and it was a kind of high-wage place where people made decent money. Someone told me when I interviewed them, it was the place with the most um, backyard swimming pools per capita in North Carolina. And part of what they were saying was, you know, you could be a working person and make good money, support your family, maybe send your kids to college. Um, they really good sports teams. Mike Quick, the Eagles All-Pro um, wide receiver, was from there. Roosevelt Stubbs, who played for the um, Los Angeles Dodgers. But, but, but that high-wage, you know, robust economy was really beginning to fall apart in the 1970s as the railroad industry was falling apart and, you know, as kind of restructuring of jobs was happening and happening in the United States and kind of over, you know, a period of time, Hamlet became a low wage place, a place, um, with high unemployment, uh, you know, increasing kinds of, um, social problems that are associated with that. And when Emmett Rowe, the owner of Imperial was looking for a place to relocate, he saw a sign, he saw an ad for an ice cream plant called the Buttercup Ice Cream Plant, and he surely did the research any employer would do, and, and the same things that would alarm us about unemployment, about growing rates of addiction, about um, kind of single-parent households were exactly the thing that attracted him to Hamlet. He knew that he would have himself an endless supply of cheap labor, and the reason why he located Hamlet you know, it was closer to his suppliers. It was, you know, North Carolina was a more favorable state that added to it. But really, it was the ability to have cheap labor who couldn't complain. And that was essentially, you know, that's the beginning, you know, part of the story here is the transformation of Hamlet and his accessibility to cheap labor there. And pretty quickly, that cheap labor broadened to the whole region around, you know, anybody within a 30 minute drive would come to work there, and all he had to do was pay a little bit above minimum wage, and people came running. I mean, that's the interesting thing, is as bad as the work was, which, and, and the work was bad, I mean, workers um, stood all day in puddles of freezing cold water. They, if they worked in the part that froze the chicken tenders, it didn't matter what time of year it was, they were wearing multiple layers of clothing. If they worked near the fire, it didn't matter what time of year it was. They had too much clothing on. And, you know, they could get burned. Um, they spent their whole day with their, you know, with their hands in chicken and smells in their, their bodies. Yet, he never, ever suffered from a dearth of labor. Brian, we need to take a quick break here for the yeah. news, and then we can pick this up, okay? Hold on. Yep. Here. Tomorrow night we're going to have a nostalgia night. Friday night will be trivia night. But tonight we're talking about a book recently 
published, actually it's been republished, we, we, we might talk about that a moment sometime tonight if we have time, called The Hamlet Fire, written by Bryant Simon, who is a professor of history at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia, but he has an undergraduate and graduate degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and was in North Carolina when the fire occurred, and it uh, grabbed his interest, and he has an interest also in food, and uh, one of the things I like about this book is it isn't just a story about a fire in a, in a, a factory building, but rather uh, a story about a way of, uh, of life that was developing in America, both for the people who got killed and for the people who were eating what they were making. Did I do all right on that, Brian? Yeah, you did, you did great. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's talk a little. I, I was listening to a radio program one night, and they were talking, I mentioned him to you earlier, with Eric Schlosser about how uh, that uh, the food that we eat, to some extent these days, is determined by what McDonald's needs. And if they yeah. need chicken tenders, we're going to have chicken tenders, and, uh, because they, they, that's where the food is sold. And, uh, and uh, uh, in the effort, uh, and you, you do, I think, a really good job, because I've read a little bit about how they take a chicken apart. And I'm not sure you would want to eat any chicken tenders after you, you read this, but uh, in any event, I think that's where we need to go now. Yeah, I mean, there's a fascinating moment right about the time that, that um, Emmett Rowe um, moves to Hamlet, North Carolina. A kind of watershed moment happens in American eating where chicken replaces beef as the nation's number one source of meat-based protein. This is a really big deal. and um, But, you know, the reason why was not really health, as some people said. It was cost. At the same time that... Um, Chicken passes beef. Wages in America are going down, and people are looking for cheaper and cheaper sources of food. And chicken was that cheap source of food. And, and it's kind of amazing. In 1923, chicken cost as much as lobster. But between 1923 and 1980, essentially chickens, the birds themselves, become industrialized. And you know, people in North Carolina know this story. Um, the growers, the people who raise chicken, just become really efficient at it and are kind of forced into being efficient at it. Um, the people at NC State and other poultry kind of science places figure out how to feed chickens these kind of miracle foods so they get fatter faster, even though their legs often break and they sort of wallow in their own urine and excrement. Um, and essentially, the, the chicken becomes a cheaper product. and this has all happened at the same time, beginning in the 1970s, that wages in America are beginning to contract. And so more and more home, homemakers are turning to chicken, but there's a problem with chicken. Chicken just doesn't have the range of taste that beef does. There's just not the number of cuts. There's not the number of ways to make it different. And so this is kind of the chicken industry finds itself in this really fascinating dilemma of, what they call chicken fatigue. Consumers want cheaper products, right? But chicken itself is kind of bland. And the kind of breakthrough moment, as you pointed out, I mean, it's a little bit of a long story. It starts with a, a, a health, a food scientist at Cornell. Basically, McDonald's in the 80s introduces the chicken nugget. Now, chicken becomes, for many people, this kind of easy-to-eat, Fried, which has all kinds of kind of sensors in it, salt, 
additive product that makes it cheaper, right? The, the biggest thing in chicken nuggets at one point is water. And this just revolutionizes the chicken industry. It's explosive, right? Now they figure out they got something they can do with all of this kind of cheap chicken. And chicken nuggets, somebody says, become the hot dog of the 1980s. And eventually, a company like Imperial wants in. But they're not big enough to make chicken nuggets. That's like for the big boys. That's for Tyson. And so they begin to make specialty chicken products. But the other thing that's really interesting here, as you alluded to, is, and they kind of thought about this, you know, kind of the Walmart analogy of, you know, Walmart workers who, you know, get paid, you know, relatively low wages who just walk right back into the Walmart and buy the things they put on the shelves to make ends meet. Well, similarly, this is what happened with the workers in Hamlet. They they got paid so little, they had to rely on cheap food to feed their families. This was really the cheapening of food is would allow them to kind of keep going. But almost all the food that was cheap was dangerous to their health. And, you know, I tell this story in the book, you know, 12 chicken nuggets cost about as much as a pound of broccoli. And, you know, they're much more filling. And so kind of logically, the people who work there begin to make the choice to stretch their wages as far as they can they begin to buy highly processed foods, including the chicken nuggets and tenders they make, to feed them and their families. But there's a, a side effect to this, and, and that side effect is that many of them um, see this in their bodies. It's the origins of the obesity crisis. If you look at the graphs, they track all of the things that we're talking about here. It's in the 1970s and 1980s that obesity rates in the United States go up. And they go up in largely poor and underserved communities. Why? Because their wages are going down, and they increasingly are forced to eat food that is cheaper, food that's dangerous to their bodies. And so I literally was able, I was able to get the death certificates of the people who died in the fire. And of the 25 people who died, somewhere between 12 and 18 of them were unhealthy. Their bodies were, they, they were physically unhealthy. And I, you know, they, they were overweight. Um, some of them highly overweight and in part because what they were doing was eating the very food that they were making. And the other part of the story is that eventually this is costly for all of society. Um, as we know, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% of all health care costs in this country are associated with obesity. So essentially the system of cheap that we put in place is actually really costly. But people who are obese miss work more, they're not as efficient, they have all kinds of comorbidity and other health problems. Often they're poor, we know, which means they don't have adequate health coverage. That coverage is picked up by the state and the federal government. And what we see, we begin to see with the, the food issue, what I refer to as the high cost of cheap. You saw this, for instance, in Hurricane Florence, right? When the inadequate um, way in which the runoff from hog factories and hog plants and, um, you know, flooded and endangered the water. And we see 
a whole series of ways in which what appears to be cheap and what delivers short-term profits for some is actually really expensive for everybody else. Uh, it, it seems like to me, if I could add, add just a little bit here, that one of the things that you're talking about is you take uh, parts of the chicken that maybe would not be highly edible and uh, pound them and beat on them a little bit and, and process them, I think would be the word, and then you, you bread them, and the, and the bread is, this, you know, is, is soaked with oil and so on, and that's where you're going to end up getting, getting your, your, getting your uh, obesity from it. And, and that flavor is and that flavor is slightly addictive, right? We know yeah, like salt, know. fat, and sugar. And and sugar are added to make them, make them palatable. And, right. At, at one point, the 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 owners of Imperial, um, they were making chicken nuggets that had so little chicken in them that the company they sold them to sent them back. They were trying to. Um, didn't, you know, you, didn't somebody do an autopsy on a chicken nugget and found you know there wasn't really much chicken in there? Yeah, and I cited a couple of, of uh, I can't remember, I think they maybe were at Mississippi State. They did an autopsy. And at one point, uh, I mean, this is a, another kind of relationship here. At one point, the, the, the biggest, I mean, probably won't surprise anyone, the, the, the biggest product in a chicken nugget was water, which itself is a highly subsidized product, right, by the government. And if you add water, and, and this is something Eric Schlosser talks about, right, I mean, the chickens eating corn. There's a lot of corn cornstarch in the sauce and in the breading, and all of that is a highly subsidized product, right? That we're subsidizing. That actually, in the end, is making people in this country sick. That we pay for in the back end with their health care costs. Uh, did, and also, didn't you report that a very high percentage of the chickens have salmonella? Yeah, at that point, um, and this is still true today, Consumer Reports, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 80% of commercial chicken has some trace of salmonella in it. And that's actually increased in recent years as the federal government has scaled back on inspections and allowed companies to run their chicken processing lines faster. Because the faster they run them, the harder it is to inspect things. And this began during the Carter administration. He, he allowed for a kind of heavy escalation, um, given his ties to the chicken industry. He allowed for a heavy escalation of the pace of work, and this has just increased in recent years. Okay, you know what we need to do? We need to stop here. And maybe I don't, uh, you, you're in charge of where you go because you're telling the story. But maybe we need to take a kind of a swipe at uh, uh, the government, uh, and sure. maybe the local government. I, I, I found the whole business about the fire departments and, and the maps and all that just absolutely fascinating because it seems like nobody ever even noticed the factory was out there. And uh, uh, you could have burned the whole city down, it seems like, at some time. But anyway, you, it, it's your story. Yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk about that after break. Sounds after good. After we take the break, there you go. He's going to be a radio guy after all. This is the Tom <laughs> Kearney Show on WPTF. We'll be back. This is WPTF. Tom Kearney here every night, Monday through Friday, from nine until ten, with the programs we hope uh, edify and entertain you. And tonight we're talking about the Hamlet Fire back in 1991, and finding out that the story is more entertaining, sadly, and uh, uh, much more complicated than we might imagine. The book is The Hamlet Fire, 
A Tragic Story of Cheap Food, Cheap Government, and Cheap Lives by Bryant Simon, Professor of History at Temple University. Brian, we've got about uh, six minutes left in the program. All right. This is where my book of interviewing says, if your guest has not had has a subject that he wishes to speak on and he has not been asked a question, this is when he gets to talk. So there you are. Well, I, I thought we, we could end with what you wanted to talk about, um, about the kind of local government and um, in Hamlet and kind of dovetail with a couple of things and maybe bring up a couple of things we haven't talked about. Okay. So we already discussed, right, that Hamlet was a town that had seen better days by the 1980s, and that was attractive to the employer, Emmett Rowe, but that also created some, some real problems for the local government. They needed revenues. They needed money. They needed employers. They needed people to pay taxes. And they were happy to accommodate someone like Emmett Rowe. And so when Rowe moved there, he wasn't one of these guys who joined the Chamber of Commerce. He wasn't a gladhander in that sense. And the local government left him alone. They left him to do what he wanted to do. And we've already talked about that, that they didn't initiate any inspections. They didn't alert state officials, um, even though you're in a small town. And I think one of the reasons for that, I mean, we've already discussed it, is they wanted revenues. The other, I think, was the people who worked there. This is not the place where, you know, people who went to the First Baptist Church went. Um, this was a place largely of women um, who worked there. Seventy-five percent of them were black. Um, large numbers of them were single moms. They were the kind of people who were forgotten. And um, and I think you can't you, you, you can't probably overestimate that that was part of the reason why, in some ways, their lives didn't matter as much. And and I, I think there's a kind of amazing story a, a kind of woman whose husband owned a store in town was asked about the fire at, right after by a reporter, and she said, "I didn't even know the plant was there." And Hamel was a town of five thousand people. Imperial was the largest private employer in town, and she didn't know it was there. And and that kind of eraser, I think, is really important. And it happens even after the fire. I mean, kind of amazingly, the plant is on the black side of town, and um, it a year after the fire, the plant's still there. That means, you know, if you live on that side of town and you want to go to the grocery store, you're driving by the plant. And that meant you surely knew someone who died. So what you're saying, it sounds like there's an element of racism probably in this. Yeah, I mean, race plays a part, right? And um, But I was going to, you know, that plant stayed there for 10 years, in part because the local government, at least in the eyes of some, didn't want to lose a revenue source. And, and the largely African-American community wanted the plant to be a memorial. And because it was near a railroad spur and it was a kind of a good location for a plant, there was talk that, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't do that because they were hoping to lure another employer to town. The roads never reopened and we, we didn't get to talk about like what happened to them. Um, but I think that is just another form of cheap, right? Like the the interest in taxes, the interest in revenue generation for them was more important than the quality of their lives that Literally, uh, psychologists who dealt with the people who survived the fire called the plant 
sitting there a source of trauma and terror. Well, one of the things that you you were talking about, and I meant to intervene earlier, is that you have a chapter called Silence. Yeah. It it is about the point where everybody knew something, just about everybody at least knew something wasn't exactly right, but they just didn't talk about it. uh, From from the mayor, you know, from the city officials to the people who worked there, because they lived in a world, this is the system part, of such limited choices that they felt like they were invested in keeping the plan open despite its lack of safety. Because if it wasn't there, there was nothing else. Didn't you tell the story of them drilling some wells <laughs> internally that were illegal and uh, no permits, and they were dumping raw sewage back into the line or something like that? Yeah, the, 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 the owners of the company were so pressed and so um, so desperate to kind of you know generate whatever profit they could, they dug a series of illegal wells in the back of the plant because chicken plants need a lot of water, and they were taking all this free water and then dumping it back into the city system without a filter. And at one point in in the six months before the fire. The city had to shut down all of the water in the city because it had been loaded with chicken fat. And still, they, they didn't close the plant down. I mean, the, the actually, city manager feels a certain guilt over this. Um, he, he brought them in to show cause why they shouldn't close, and the city balked because it didn't want to lose the revenues from keeping the plant open. I'm going to call time on you now. I think you, you have teased us. Uh, not inappropriately, as to the seriousness of some of the issues that are covered in this book, in addition to the fire and the number of people that were killed because of the locked doors and so on, there were many other issues that contributed to a really bad situation. The book is The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. The author is Bryant Simon. It's published by UNC Press, and that means it's going to be available at your bookstores or at Amazon or just about anywhere you get books and so on. Thank you, Brian, for being with us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, I hope I can talk to you off the air in in just a couple of minutes. Okay. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.